Hello, everybody. This is uh, Trevor Locke, and I'm joined today by figure skating coaching legend Frank Carroll. Hello, Mr. Carroll, and thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to join me today. Hi, Trevor. It's nice to be chatting with you. Now, I'm sure that everyone that's listening to this interview knows who you are and some of your accomplishments, but I thought I'd give a brief overview anyway. Mr. Carroll's students have won 11 world championships, and he's the only coach to be named Olympic Coach of the Year. His former students include Michelle Kwan, Linda Fradiani, Christopher Bowman, Nicole Bobek, Angela Nikodinov, Tiffany Chin, Mark Cockrell, Tim, Timothy Gable, and his current students include Evan Lysacek and Jennifer Kirk, and if I'm not mistaken, Beatrice Liang and Danielle Kale. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Wow, that's quite a roll call. Mr. Carroll is the head coach at the Toyota Sports Center in the Los Angeles area, but Frank, you have a residence in Marina Del Rey, and then your home is actually in Palm Springs. Is that right? Yes, I've lived in Palm Springs for many years, uh, for the early 70s, and I've always maintained a small place uh, close to work, so where the ice rinks are, there's nothing in the, uh, the valley where the desert is, and so I've had to either have a small apartment or a condo, or I've lived on a boat for uh, about four and a half years. Oh, wow. I didn't know you were a seaman. Well, I wasn't actually a great seaman. The boat was beautiful and very roomy, and I took it to Catalina a number of times, but unfortunately I didn't enjoy that part of it. But it was very comfortable living on board. Sure. What is the big draw for you? I know that I've read some other interviews that say that you really love Palm Springs. What is it about Palm Springs that you like? Well, I don't know, but a lot of skaters and people that spend time in ice rinks end up in Palm Springs. It's a great community of former performers and coaches and people in the industry that live there. And I think it's because it's warm and it's hot and beautiful and sunny. And I think we spend so much time in the cold that we welcome that different climate and atmosphere. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, Frank, I thought we would start out today by discussing just a little of your background in skating. Uh, you grew up in Massachusetts. How did you get involved in skating? Well, actually, uh, when I was a little kid, I had seen newsreels. When you go to the movies, they used to have news. And I, I saw movies of, oh, Sonia Klopper, Dunfield, and um, Dick Button when he won his first Olympics in 1948 and mm -hmm. people skating, and then also I, w I saw some of the Sonia Henney movies, and skating was very popular in films at that time, and so I thought, gee, that's a great sport, and uh, the combination of the music and the athleticism appealed to me a great deal, and I thought, you know, someday, if I have the opportunity, I'm going to do that, and so I skated on the ponds that froze over in the winter and had figure skates, which were hard to come by in Worcester, because they didn't have many figure skates for, for young boys, but I did get a pair that they sent for, and then I would figure skate as long as the uh, ice lasted outdoors. Then, lo and behold, uh, they opened an ice rink, which was right behind my house. So in order to get to the ice rink, all I had to do was jump a fence, and I was there. So it was very, very convenient. Sounds like Providence. Yes, definitely. So how, how old were you when the ice rink was put up and you started to skate more formally? Well, I was in my early teens. I, um, I didn't skate until I was probably about 13 years old. I mean, in an artificial rink indoors. I, had, mm -hmm. I could skate, and, you know, I was a very good swamp skater, which is the 
a term for people that only skate outdoors and learn, you know, themselves. But uh, what know, was I, the term you used? Swamp skaters. Okay. And uh, I, you know, I had good balance and you know good speed. I wasn't afraid. So, but the beginning things of balance and and being able to maneuver were there when I started mm-hmm. skating indoors. But the man who owned the rink, his name was Lars Anderson, and he owned rinks in Hartford, Connecticut, and part of a North Shore uh, sports center in Lynn, Massachusetts. And uh, because I was there every day watching every piece of equipment go into the building and every pipe and every uh, piece of wood, he took a liking to me and gave me a key to the rink and said, uh, Frank, whenever there's not hockey or something or a public session, you're welcome to come in and use the rink. And so I used to go in before school, and uh, every opportunity I had, I'd be on site. Wow. So, so growing up, your coach was uh, Maribel Vincent Owens. At the time, did you appreciate the fact that you were working with one of the top coaches in the world at the time? Well, when I first met her, uh, of course, I took from other coaches uh, that were local in Worcester and very, very nice, kind people to me. One, one name was Hertha Garen Silver who still teaches a little bit in the uh, Buffalo, New York area. Very kind lady. But when I met Maribel, actually, I met her through her daughters. I was summer skating at a very young age, maybe 15 years old, in Lynn, Massachusetts. And her two daughters, Maribel Jr. and Laurent, were summer skating. But Maribel wasn't teaching that summer. She had come back to uh, the East to help her mother, who was elderly, and their big old uh, family home, which was really a mansion, and now it's a declared an historic site, was falling apart, and it needed repair very badly. So she came back east to live and help her, her mom, and the, the girls skated. So I became very friendly. We became skating buddies and friends, and I really didn't know who Maribel Vincent was. And the girls told me that their mother was the national champion many times. And I thought, oh, that's nice. And then, of course, I heard through the rumor mill, you know, just how important and famous Maribel was. And so it was a a very great honor to take lessons from her. Actually, I knew her daughters before I knew her. Do you feel like some of the the skaters that you teach now uh, may have the same feeling about you? You know, it's, it's it's just Frank, he's my coach. And don't quite understand, you know, that you've produced these world champions? Well, I think it's a little bit different. They may be more aware because of television and the media. You know, back in those days, uh, there wasn't television. And um, as far as skating was concerned, and there wasn't, you know, a lot of, of fame connected to it as much as it is now. Of course, you were famous within your sport. But it wasn't quite the same as it is now. There's, there's much more theatricality involved, and it, it, it's much more of a media kind of sport than it was sure. back in the day. So you yourself were a medalist at the national championships. How many times and at what level? Well, I was probably competing four, four or five times, and I won medals in three U.S. national championships. Um, I was the senior Eastern champion, novice junior senior champion. But uh, at the national level, when you were the senior champion, you could compete in the junior level. And I did. I, I did not compete in the national senior level. I was second in the novice championship, 
which was my first national, and I was third twice in juniors. The last uh, national championship I, I competed in, I wanted to stay back and win it, but I actually I did not skate well, and there was a boy that I had beaten every national event for many, many years. His name was Doug Ramsey, and Doug did win, and I was third. Bruce Heist, Carol's brother, was second. And, of course, Doug went on to be killed in the plane crash mm -hmm. the next year. And I turned professional because I was leaving school. I had finished Holy Cross, and it was time to get on with my life. In those days, you didn't live at home with your family and have them support you and skate. You got out in the world after finishing college and provided for yourself. But it's ironic that maybe if I had won and beaten Doug that year, Maribel would have talked me into staying and competing the next year in national seniors. And, you know, you know everybody that, that could have been on that airplane that says they should have or could have been on that airplane, believe me, the airplane would have never been able to leave the ground. So yeah. there's a lot of ifs and coulds and maybes and what. And, and, uh, but it's kind of ironic that, you know, Doug, who was a very delightful young man, very, very talented and a friend, uh, ended up to be dead, yep. and I'm alive. So there's many of us that can say that. Barbara Rolls is very lucky mm -hmm. that she survived all that and was having a child and was unable to keep. So, you know, there's a lot of us who can say that. Yes. So w when you were a skater, what were, what were the levels of the jumps that you had mastered at that time? Uh, well, I did double axle easily. You know, double axle was one of my best jumps, and uh, it was very easy for me. I was a very good jumper. I also did triple sow-cow badly, and I don't <laughs> know if I ever did it clean, but we did fool around with it. Um, and the only people that really did triple jumps in those days was David Jenkins and Ronnie Robertson. Uh -huh. uh, you know, Hayes didn't do them. Uh, Dick did triple loop. But when I knew Dick, of course, he was through. He wasn't doing triple loop anymore, and I didn't see him do it. But I, I have seen footage of him doing it. But, you know, um, the triple jumps at that time were very, very rare, and people weren't doing them. In fact, in my, in my nationals, all of the people I ever competed against in competition, none of them did a triple jump. That's, that's really interesting considering how far the sport has come on the technical level. And, you know, you're seeing quads pretty regularly these days. And um, yes, I think absolutely. before that uh, time, Dick Button was doing triples, but it seems like there was kind of a lag again where um, not everybody was doing quite as many. Right. And, you know, don't forget, there were Dick Button and Ronnie Robertson were exceptional athletes. They were not just your average national champions. Mm -hmm. They were extraordinary. I mean, nobody spun as fast as Ronnie Robertson. He was incredible to see. I remember the first show I did with Ronnie Robertson when I was a guest star and he was a guest star. In the warm-up, in the practice session, he came down the ice and he did a double Lutz triple loop combination, and I almost fell over. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't believe that he could do that with ease. But, uh -huh. you know, Ben uh, was incredible. You know, it, it was very intimidating to be around him. Wow. So you skated professionally with Ice Follies for about five years. 
Were there any particularly memorable lessons you learned from that experience? Oh, yeah. I, mean, um, I think as a coach, being in ice volley was absolutely a great lesson in what the audience was all about and about getting away from this circle around myself, went about 10 feet around me, and in scope of projecting performance and lines and uh, interpretation of music and awareness of uh, what you look like, uh, how to costume yourself, how to uh, be theatrical. I, I thought it was an incredible experience, and I think I've been able to groom a lot of pop skaters into being better and more finished and to have that connection with audience because of my own experience in the show. I think um, everybody who is a coach is very fortunate they had that opportunity because it was a great lesson to learn in performance. Now, I, I would venture to guess, I'm, I'm going to talk about another performance area, but I would venture to guess that not many people know that uh, you studied acting for a time and were in some films. Uh, did you enjoy that experience, and how did that Im impact your future coaching? <laughs> well, it's, it's a part of my life, really fun, but perhaps a stupid part of my life, but <laughs> it was something to remember. I, uh, I met many people in the years I was in ice volley touring, and there'd be national companies of, of different shows. I can get it for you, Wholesale, even Hello, Dolly. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of civic light opera um, companies would be in San Francisco uh, appearing at the, at the different theaters there, and they would come to see our show, The Ice Follies, and we would go to see their show, and we always would be backstage or have tickets, and so, you know, it was a reciprocal kind of theatrical thing where you could, you know, attend each other's performances. Well, I, I made quite a few friends, you know, and they were in the business. They were in the acting business and they were in show business and often said to me, you know, why don't you come to Los Angeles and, uh, you know, probably get you some work and, and doing that sort of thing. So I did. And uh, things were hard to come by as far as acting because I had no training. But I also, funny thing happened is that when I wasn't skating the show every night, my body changed because, you know, I wasn't getting that workout, that aerobic workout every night. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had friends say to me, Frank, you know, you are getting so out of shape. You look terrible. You, you're, <laughs> you're getting flabby in the waist. And, you know, you've got to do something about that. Start skating again or do something because your body's changing. Well, very typical Frank Carroll, I thought, I am fat, I am ugly, I am out of shape, I am horrible, I have got to do something immediately about this, you know, kind of, what do they call it, obsessive behavior. And so I went to the gym, started going to the gym and working out. Well, I didn't just go and work out. I was there four hours a day, every day. And so my body developed, and uh I, I was in great shape, and then I was invited to beach parties in Malibu with these friends, and they said, you know what, we could really use you in this beach movie we're doing. And uh, we're doing this beach movie with, you know, the different people, then Bobby Darren and uh -huh. Annette. And, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of beach movies, surf movies, whatever. And so because I had a good body, they would ask me to be, you know, in the background, and I would be sprayed tan. 
and we'd be out in Malibu in January or February, and it would be 55 or 60 degrees, and we'd be splashing around pretending <laughs> we were having a wonderful summer time. And then we'd all run and get blankets and try to stay warm. So I did do some movies uh, that, you know, were stupid movies. I did one for Tony Richardson, which was The Loved One, and uh, which was a very good film, but you'd never find me in it. And I've offered people $100 if they can see who I am in that movie. But nobody figures it out, and I'm glad. And another thing that was fortunate for me was that my name was taken. Frank Carroll was a very good theatrical name. Mm. And there was a screen writer, director that had it, and also an actor. So there were two, and so they wouldn't let me use my own name. And so I, I had another name, and thank God that's true, because now people don't know some of the terrible films <laughs> I was doing. <laughs> so, well, so, but it, was, it was stupid, because I would go to an audition, and there'd be, you know, 12 guys there, and they would be terribly handsome and tall, did all the trained in New York or by Lee Strasberg. They would be graduates of Columbia University acting school or New York University. They had been on Broadway and off-Broadway, and they had experience. And, you know, I, I said after a while, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Was it acting that ultimately took you to the West Coast? I knew you grew up in the East, and, and now you're on the, at the West. Was it, Was it acting that took you there? No, actually, it was ice volley. I um, was in the show, and of course, in San Francisco. The summertime in San Francisco uh, is pretty cold, but it's, it's considered the winter of, <laughs> of San Francisco. But I liked it, and I liked being in California. And then we'd come down to the opening of the show in Los Angeles in September, and it'd be very, very hot. Mm. And... Uh, I was used to running through the snow to go to school and growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts and going to Holy Cross College and standing on the Boston Turnpike Route 9 to get to Boston and waiting for the bus so that I could have lessons with Maribel and being in the snow and having my hood up over my head and shaking and shivering and freezing. I said, you know what? I hate snow. I don't like this white stuff, and if I ever have a chance to get out of it and say goodbye to it, I'm going to do that. And so the opportunity came to get out of that and those winters, and I took it. And, you know, it's funny. Today, I don't ski because of snow. I like to ski. I'm good at it. And, you know, because of all the skating, my balance is great, and it's not hard for me, but I don't do it because I don't like snow. Yeah. <laughs> and people say, you're kidding. You're 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 putting a thought and you know it's it's true i don't like snow and so i am on the west coast i live in the desert where it's very very hot and i like it yeah there's not too much snow in palm springs no there's not although you know what about eight years ago it did snow in palm springs oh wow so one account i read indicated that you actually started coaching to support yourself while you were trying to make it in acting is that true well what happened really is that I became bored. I was uh, not working and, you know, not doing anything except, you know, occasional auditions and things, and I had an agent. And uh, I was going to the beach and getting tan and burned. <laughs> and 
after that, I thought, you know, what am I doing? I, I could stand to make a little bit of money. I'm going through my savings. So I called a, a, a friend whose name was Howard Craker, and he had a little ice rink in Van Nuys, California. And it was very small and very gloomy and um, not a very pleasant ice rink, but it was ice. And, you know, that's where it's at. So ice is the most important thing. It's not about the glamour of a building. It's about the ice surface. So I started going in about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 3.30. After going to the beach, I'd go to the rink and I'd put up my shingle or my, you know, little advertisement of what I had done in skating. And I got a few skaters. And, of course, I had had the greatest teacher that ever lived. And I had training. And um, I was a national medalist, so I think that I did a good job, and my skaters seemed to improve faster than other uh, coaches, students, and uh, it became very lucrative, and people wanted more and more, and it just became uh, to the point where, you know, I was booked solid. And, in fact, when Linda Fratiani's parents first, called me. I, I didn't know what the little girl looked like or who she was. And I said, I can't do this. I don't have any time. I'm booked solid. I'm sorry. I just don't have an opening. So it became, you know, very busy for me coaching very fast. All right, Frank, you've become a very popular coach, not only attracting some of the best skating talent in the country, but you have a huge following of fans. At our, the recent workshop in Milwaukee that I attended, you signed autographs for about 45 minutes. Is that typical? Um, it is, um, at, at things like that, where if I am the guest celebrity coach or something like that, um, the kids want, you know, my autograph. Uh, I, occasionally I'll be in an airport or I'll be out to dinner in Palm Springs and somebody will recognize me and, you know, want an autograph or something. And, uh, I think of myself as maybe kind of a celebrity within a sport, not a celebrity. I don't think I'm famous. I just think that I am well-known within what I do, just like anybody is, you know, in their sport. I I went to a a horse show with Tab Hunter recently, and, you know, he knew everybody there. He knew all the riders. You know, there were people there that, that were jumpers who were very, very famous within their sport. But I didn't know who they they were, but people were asking them for autographs and just falling all over them like they were in awe. And I thought to myself, you know, this is very much like figure skating in a way. You know, you can be not really famous, but very well known within your own realm and sport. Right. Are you comfortable with that role as being a celebrity within skating? Uh, yes, I think so. I try to remember that it's a responsibility to be nice to everyone and to be kind and polite and not to um, create an image that you don't have time for people. Mm -hmm. I can't stand that when I see celebrities that do that. I think that, you know, because I live in in L.A. and because I was in, in film a little bit, I've known a lot of celebrities and a lot of movie stars and met a lot of them in I found that the bigger the movies are and the more famous they, they were for like Skip Stewart, who was so kind and so nice always. And the bigger the stars, the nicer the person. I mean, Joan Crawford was terribly nice to me when she 
when I met her and she was alive. And the little people I feel, the, the, the people that maybe knew on TV, they, they, they seem to be the ones that are short with the public and, mm. and quick and don't want it to acknowledge that people are, you know, holding the scene. So, you know, I try to be aware of the fact of trying to be gracious. Well, well, you certainly have been gracious with um, sharing your information, and you've given a lot to the sport of figure skating through the PSA and your continued travel and workshops. What philosophy has, has brought you to share so much of what you've learned? Well, I personally would never have made it in skating without the kindness of other people. I mean, I can't tell you how many people helped me as a young man, you know, whether it was Lars, Anderson, the original owner of the ice rink that I skated in in Worcester, Massachusetts, whether it was Hertha Garen, there was a man named by the name of Mickey Bell Isle who sharpened my skates and gave me lessons and helped me and guided me, and I babysat for his, his kids in return. There was Cecilia College, who was a very fine teacher and gave me lessons and helped me, and then Maribel, who was, you know, my mentor and incredibly generous to me, who took me into her house and put me up on the weekends and fed me and took me to the rink mm-hmm. to skate with her daughters and took me into her family and shared so many things, not just knowledge of skating, but also just knowledge and philosophy and talking about literature and architecture and correcting my um, Latin and my French pronunciation. Uh, Maribel was a brilliant, brilliant woman. She was a magna cum laude graduate of Radcliffe University. She was the first woman sports editor of the New York Times. Mm -hmm. This woman intimidated me completely, not because of uh, anything physical or not because of her skating, but her mind, her mind was so bright and her IQ was so great at the time that it was completely intimidating to me. I was in awe of her intelligence. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like I can never give back enough to and for what people gave me. I mean, you know, I try to give back to skating and I do speak and I've done a lot for the PSA and I do try to give back knowledge and help other people because I feel an obligation to do that in return for all of the kindness and help that I received from people who were very famous people, very, very smart and intelligent people. At one of your recent workshops, you you casually mentioned that you were amused by the perception that other coaches have about you. Uh, you said that they think you lead a glamorous life and only work with elite skaters. Can you describe your typical day and the levels of skaters you work with? Sure. Well, I, I used to go into the rink at 645 and did that for, oh, years. Of course, we used to go in at 430 in the morning when we had patch, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, some people can't even imagine what that was like. There were two worlds of skating, the school figures and the free skating. But, um, I now go in at 8.45. When I fractured my hip, I was taking a lot of medication, pain medication, sleeping medication, and and I developed neuropathy through uh, injury in the operation. So I 
had was taking a lot of medication and felt I couldn't go in as early. So I go in at 8.45. But I teach on a public session. There's hockey players, people that come in with families, there's little kids. And I teach skaters that aren't particularly fabulous, but very, very nice skaters and, and, and nice kids to work with. And so then I'll work until 5 o'clock in the afternoon straight through from 8.45 until 5. And I have wide varieties of people. I work with adults. In fact, yesterday morning I gave a lesson to an adult man who's trying to learn how to do an axle. And very, very grateful for whatever I do for him and for my help. And I enjoy this because I don't like all high uh, intense lessons with very talented uh, world team and international skaters. It, it gives me a chance to relax and to hone my skills by working with people that are not on that level. And so mm-hmm. I enjoy it. And so that's my typical day, 8.45 in the morning till 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, it's hard work, but I like teaching skating, and I, I like doing what I do. It's, it's amazing when you enjoy what you're doing, how fast the day goes by, isn't it? Yes, and I find it, it's much better to be busy and book solid than it is to have gaps in your schedule. Gaps in my schedule when people can't make it or cancel, I hate that because you're sort of standing around in a cold atmosphere. And, you know, most ice rinks, I don't care whether they're, they're new or whatever, they're not a great environment to hang out. I don't mm-hmm. think an ice rink is a good place to hang out in. I don't, I don't think that too many of the people listening would believe that skaters actually cancel lessons with you. Well, you know, things happen. You know, I live in Los Angeles. It's basically 200 miles across. You know, I, I mean, they, they may live down in Long Beach or they may live in the San Fernando Valley uh, or, you know, in Simi Valley, but it's still Los Angeles. It's all yeah. Los Angeles. It's, it's huge spread. And if they get on a freeway and there's a really bad accident, they're stuck for three hours. Sure. You know, in the other morning, there was a a bad industrial accident, and it took me four hours to come from Palm Springs to L.A. And so, you know, that's that's typical of what happens. So I'll get a cell phone phone call, and it will be, you know, a parent saying, Frank, we're really, really sorry, but we're just not going to make it. And so things happen like that. Sure. Most of the time, though, I do have somebody else, and I'll grab and say, you know what, you need work on your double axe and get over here. So, yep. you know, <laughs> it's, it's not all that often that I have gaps, but uh-huh. I do. So, so uh, Frank, to help me prepare for this interview, I asked a great group of skating coaches to submit some questions. And uh, I asked them if they could ask you anything, what would it be? And I got a wide range of questions. And uh, I'd just like to uh, ask you a few of them, and I thought I'd just dive right in. Okay. Shoot. All right, so here's one. Do you find that skaters today have the body awareness and control they did in the days of figures? With figures gone, what exercises or methods do you use for body uh, awareness and control? Um, I don't think they have the same body awareness. No, I don't. I don't think they have the control in the skating hip and in the basic positions that we taught in the figures. Um, I think it's much easier for them to step off their hip and not understand how strong they have to keep their balance over the blade and their basic hip and shoulder position because they don't do it for two hours straight. 
like they do. I also feel that the use of the ankles and the shifting of the weight on the blade is not the same. Um, of course, the moves in the field are okay, but I don't think they're the same. I mean, you know, sure, let's do counters. Well, I, I don't think I've seen anybody do a, a test with moves in the field that really do absolutely clean counters and rockers. As long as they turn in that counter direction or turn, you know, in the three-turn direction as a, in a rocker, they seem to pass the test. So I don't think that it's being taught the same, with the same strength and the same accuracy as it, it was in the figures. I try to do uh, as many basic positions of a standstill, whether it's a rotational position for the back spin or whether it's a checkout position in, in square hips, I try to do the basic positions required in jumping almost at a standstill and make them be able to balance on the blade and to be able to hold the position when they're not even doing uh, a maneuver. But, you know, I sort of make do with what my brain picks up with to do exercises that will take the place of doing school figures. Do you think that if uh, skaters spend at least a little time on school figures that they would have an easier time of... uh you know, doing proper jump setups if they, you know, had to had entrances under control? Yes, I do. I do believe that. In fact, we do do certain things when uh, I have trouble with somebody controlling um, a head turn without moving their whole body. I'll mm-hmm. make them do like a back outside eight and keep their hips square and be able to rotate their upper body and turn their head without moving. For instance, going into axles, double axles or even triple axles, so easy on the back outside edge for skaters to just let their whole body move and not understand, you know, keeping the hips and the strength of lower part of your body absolutely motionless while you're rotating your upper body, which we did, of course, on rockers and on the back outside edge. So I do some of the basic school figure positions. I wouldn't say I make them do a patch lesson, but I do use them. So, so here's another question. How do you condition your skaters? Do you use double run-throughs? And, and how does the training, how do, you, how do you ramp up or ramp down the training going into major competitions? Well, first of all, I think that um, there is no magic formula to success in skating and in training and conditioning. Um, I, I just think it's very, very simple. And the people that don't do it don't succeed. And uh, it's crazy to me that people don't pick up on what the great skaters do and the champions do and why they succeed and others fail. To me, just doing your program from the start to the finish with no excuses and getting on your feet immediately if you fall and not making a difference in the choreography even though you make a mistake but training your program from the start to the finish is absolutely essential to success and conditioning. I have many very famous skaters or very very fine skaters come and ask me for lessons. And if I'm going to accept them, I explain to them, look, if you will not a program from the start to the finish, true for me to the best of your ability without excuses and without uh, stopping, I am not your guy. Mm -hmm. You need someone else to work with because 
that I absolutely insist on its number one rule. And I feel that any skater that wants to be in shape, that is the best tool to do it. And I think that you have to do your long program through all the way with no excuses every single day and your short program through every single day. I then would expect if there's difficulty that they put the music back on and they do the section that they missed or had trouble with and work on it again and again. I do not do double run-throughs. I do make them stroke afterwards, and if they miss a a jump, say a double axle, I would tell them to stroke and then try the double axle afterwards. I don't do double run-throughs. To give you the reason why, I don't know why I don't do double run-throughs. But I know that there are a lot of sports where people have died of heart attacks out in the football field or Mm -hmm. on a basketball floor, and that there are people that have enlarged hearts or or slight heart problems, like Linda Frontiani had of enlarged heart, and we had to be conscious and aware of that whenever she trained. And so I don't do that, and maybe that's the reason I don't do double run through. Mm-hmm. But I think if you just do it straightforward and you understand the concept of never stopping, that will keep you in good stead. That will make you consistent if you can run through it consistently every day, and it will give you the stamina and the aerobic training that is necessary. Okay. Here's another question. Many coaches have key phrases that they say to their students that remind the student to do something or inspires the student. Do you have some of those key phrases? Well, one, yes, of course I do, but probably a thousand that I can't think of at the moment. But one of the things I used to say all the time was, one footer fanny, meaning you land the jump on one footer, you go down, but you don't put your foot down and stumble around. But now with the new scoring system, I don't know if that's such a good thing to say anymore because <laughs> you get one point off if you touch your butt to the ice. So yep. one footer fanny maybe is not appropriate anymore. Mm. But uh, that, that's one I used to use. And uh, if something was, was very, very good, uh, and wonderful, I would say something to the humor like, oh, that, that was wonderful. It's, it's enough to bring tears to my glass eye. And, you know, <laughs> things that are humorous. And, um, you know, because I like, I like it to be um, an atmosphere where we're having fun and that there's discipline and that we're strict about discipline, but also that it, it's not a heavy not enjoyable experience. I think that you, if you really want to skate, you have to love to skate and like to skate. If you're doing an atmosphere that's miserable, I think that uh, I wouldn't want to do it. I don't know why anybody else would want to do it. All right, so an, another question, and, and this is gener- a, a fairly broad one, and, and actually a whole number of coaches asked something very similar. It's uh, For someone just starting out in coaching, what resources would you suggest for a beginning coach to learn proper techniques to teach students? And, and another coach asked, what is the best advice you could give a new coach starting out? And another one asked, what advice could you give to ensure a long coaching career? I think these are all related. Um, maybe you could just say a few words about it. Well, I think that when you walk into an ice rink and you – want to teach skating and you, you you want to do it well, 
you have to understand that you have to acknowledge other people around you. I think that you have to get to know the other coaches. You have to introduce yourself, and you have to be pleasant and professional with them. I don't think coming with a chip on your shoulder that you know a lot more than they do or coming in because I've been trained in a country where I have my degree from the University of Warsaw or whatever, and I have this degree in and sports and all of this is the right attitude. I think you have to respect other people's knowledge. Mm. I think you have to respect the fact that in an ice rink, everybody has to work together to keep the ice rink going, that there will be hockey and public skating, that on a public session that the public skaters have the right of way and that the figure skaters are guests on it. And if they're allowed to jump and spin and put music on, they must always give way to the public and that there will be time for hockey players, and that hockey coaches and hockey players work very hard also. They're not the bad guys. I teach in a rink that really is uh, majorly hockey because it's owned by the Kings, the L.A. Kings. Mm-hmm. And the hockey uh, skaters are very, very nice and kind guys, and we get along with them very, very well. So the atmosphere has to be one of mutual respect. I think that um, you have to understand discipline, that even though you may not have any lessons and you may not be working, that you have to be at the ice rink and available. If you're starting out, you have to take anybody as a student. Uh, If some kid stumbling around doesn't know how to skate, ask you for a lesson and you're a national champion, uh, yourself, you have to give that kid a lesson and you have to start out at that level. You can't mm-hmm. think of yourself as above someone's ability. Like, you know, you you're, put yourself on a pinnacle that, that says that I can't work at this level. You have to understand how to go about the beginning of it, the struggling that takes place at the beginning. As far as um, longevity in the sport, I think you have to keep yourself healthy and disciplined. I think that I'm lucky because I've always worked out. I've always put my skates on and I've taught with my skates on and I've moved around the rink and, you know, I'm not young anymore, but I still do footwork and back scratch spins and landing positions. And I try to keep active physically so that my body will last. And I've been very much aware of, of that nutrition. I eat well. And I think that, um, Longevity coaching our life is all about taking care of the body. And mm-hmm. so um, I've been aware of those things. Now, in your answer, you also just alluded to very briefly sort of education, obviously through talking with other coaches and working with other people. Are there other things that you can suggest to coaches in terms of the best way for them to become more knowledgeable in the sport and, and better at teaching technique? Well, I think that, First of all, of course, we have the PSA, which is wonderful. And when I started out uh, there, and when I was first in skating, there were people that were very famous, Pierre Brunet, Gus Lucy, Maribel Vincent, Eddie Sholden, but they didn't share knowledge. They were all in their separate little camps. Like, you cannot take lessons from Gus Lucy because you are with Pierre Brunet. I mean, there was real animosity uh, Mm -hmm. among them. There were these different camps. 
But you know what? It's not like that anymore today, and I hope it will stay that way. There are no secrets that people have that they don't share. Everybody shares knowledge. I mean, within the PSA, we, we've done everything we can to make uh, this knowledge available to people and to try to raise the, the level of teaching in this country. So young coaches need to get involved in the PSA and do the workshops, you know, go to PACE. They need to attend the convention. The conventions are wonderful. I mean, there's so much going on, you know, all day long when you go to a convention. It's mind-boggling. And so that is all available to them. But they should never feel like they know it all. I cannot stand that attitude in people in anything, whether it's coaching or whether it's, it's, it's like sometimes you go to a restaurant and there will be Dr. Johnson demanding his table. Well, I am Dr. Johnson. Because they're a doctor does not mean they know everything about life. They don't particularly maybe know about the arts or opera or architecture. They, they know about medical things. And so I think that we, we have to have that attitude that we don't know it all, that we always have something to learn and something we can learn. I, know, I think another great tool is observation to, to observe the coaches that you think are wonderful to observe how they interact with their students, how they handle themselves at competition, uh, see what they do, you know, go, go to a nationals and sit there and just watch, not just the skating, but watch the coaches mm-hmm. and watch why they have coaches at nationals and what they do. And so observation is a great thing to be kind of aware of what's going around and what's, you know, there to see and learn. So I know that um, you work with a team of coaches for, for many of your skaters. Who is all on your team of coaches, and, and what are their roles? Well, you know what? I would like to think that my whole staff is my team. I work very closely with Ken Kajemi, who is a marvelous young man and very, very talented. And uh, he was trained by Peter Burroughs in New York. And he has great body awareness. He has a great mind. Uh, he was educated at Boston University, and he is totally into numbers mm-hmm. and um, and the new scoring system and uh, what will give one-tenth of a point more. And he loves figuring out the scoring system and how he can get it to work for him, and I, I admire that a lot. He's a, he's a computer man. He His spare time is spent on the computer having fun, doing any number of things. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I work very closely with him. We have other coaches that that are uh, good choreographers. Heather McLaughlin, who uh, was trained by Kathy Casey, beautiful, beautiful girl, does lovely choreography and uh, is involved with doing programs and spinning and things like that. And she is a pleasure to be around. And there's Bert Holmes, who was on the Olympic team and was sixth in the Olympics in pairs. and he actually was a little bit of a student. I worked with him when John Nix uh, worked with him and also Betty Barons. And I did teach him some singles when he was on the world team in pairs. And so he works alongside with me. Very kind, ambitious young man who has a lot of young kids, you know, young kids that are doing very, very well. 
and uh, we we have a great staff. I I don't want to labor on who they are, but we work together. We have no hesitation saying, "Here, take from this person." Richard Yule is there, who is the national junior champion and was a star in ice capades. He wonderful guy. So we all get along. That's one thing I insist in my facility that the coaches get along, acknowledge each other, respect each other, no antagonism whatsoever in the coach's room. We'll not put up with that. If I feel that somebody is a rotten apple in a barrel, I will get rid of them on the spot. I don't want an atmosphere that's antagonistic or unpleasant to be around. So, so how, how would you recommend that um, a coach anywhere in the country would go about creating a team? Uh, well, I think, first of all, you have to find somebody you respect. I think that um, if you want to coach with somebody and they have available coaching time, uh, they ha- they can't be just anybody. They mm-hmm. can't be somebody who teaches a technique different from yours who doesn't perceive jumping in the same way you do. Because I think jumping is um, is something that, that can be very different and people have different methods, and, and some of it very wonderful. You know, one of my dear, dear friends is Tom Zakrishek, and he, uh, he's like my son. I was in his wedding party, and he is doing a marvelous job at the Broadmoor, and I have only the utmost respect and affection for Tom. But, you know, we talk about technique all the time, and a lot of things we really totally agree on, but like double axle, we don't. We teach it differently, and we know that, and uh, we talk about what we do. So there's a little different technique there. So I think you need to find somebody that you're compatible with technique-wise, and the basic philosophy of skating is the same. Without that, I don't think it's a go situation. I think you, you have to find that person that understands what you do, and you understand what they do. So if a problem comes up, you can discuss it and work it out so that it's best for the skater. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, although it's related to some of our earlier questions. What specifically do you think has made you so successful as a coach? Oh, dear. Oh, discipline by far. Oh, I, I, you know, I've had people tell me I'm the most disciplined person they've ever met in their life. Mm. <laughs> and I can remember Virginia Fadiani, who's now, you know, uh, passed on, who was just a lovely, lovely, wonderful person and just said to me, I cannot believe you. You are the most disciplined person I've ever met. And they would be over silly things. For instance, we'd be out to dinner together and it would be time for dessert and she'd say, oh my gosh, that looks so good. I'm going to have chocolate mousse. And uh, I would say, well, I don't, I'm not going to have any dessert. And then the chocolate mousse would come and she'd be eating it and she'd give me a spoon and she'd say, here, taste it. It's wonderful. And I would say, no, I really don't want it. She would just get so mad at me because she'd say, you know, damn you, you're the most disciplined person I've ever met in my life. And it's true. You know, if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I am there. And um, it, it, it's just very important to me. Be good with your word. And if you say you're going to do something, you're there and that you are professional about that and disciplined. And that, I think, is probably my greatest asset. Do you feel that that builds, uh, how would you say, a very strong relationship with trust with with your skaters and, and the fact that you have discipline uh, kind of sets an example for 
them needing discipline in their skating? Yes, I think so. And I think that they understand when I say something, I mean it. And I think truth is absolutely one of the most important things, too. I never lie to a kid. I never tell them something's wonderful when it's not. I tell them the truth, even though it's brutal. And um, I think that trying to kid kids or tell them something that's not true is a mistake. I think that you have to be encouraging, but your word has to be your bond with them. And so that when you say something, they understand that you mean it and you're not going to go back on it. And that's the way it is. You know, I think that's very important. All right. My next question uh, is is one that's probably near the heart of all uh, coaches. And it's this. Obviously, we all have good days and bad days as professionals. When things aren't going as planned, what helps give you motivation to keep striving for excellence? Well, I I think my basic philosophy helps me in situations like that because I think that, you know, um, things happen that are not pleasant, but you move on and you get over it. And, you know, basically my, my philosophy about life is that life does not last forever. You know, I mean, you, you could think of it, you're going to be omnipotent and you're going to live forever. Well, you're not. And <laughs> so things happen. Death is going to happen. So bad things will happen, but I think you have to um, cherish the good things and and concentrate and focus on uh, what makes you happy and that, you know, there will be adversity, but what is the big picture? What What is life all about? Can you keep your eye on on the wonderful part and can you try to give joy to other people and can you try to be a good person and that you know, some things will happen, but overall you have to think in a positive way. You know, it's funny. I don't know if people pray or not. I'm a Catholic, but not maybe a great practicing Catholic as far as, you know, I don't feel the obligation to do a lot of things which maybe the church requires or expects. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do talk to God, and I, I talk to God a lot when I'm driving the car. And I I say things to him such as, you know, thank you for your goodness and kindness to me all the years of my life and thank you for helping me to to have the life I've had. And I think that we need to take time out to acknowledge the wonderful, pleasant things that we have and not dwell on the negative, not dwell on the bad things or this fight with this parent or, or this skater that's but to dwell on the fact that there will be other skaters that come along that are talented and you're going to have lots of opportunities in your life not to let one negative experience get you down to a point where you think is life worth living anymore or I am so down in the dumps I'll never get out you know and that that's basically been my philosophy mm -hmm. so it, it's maybe sort of related um when a skater kind of hits a plateau, and I think we've probably all experienced this, where um, they're, they're, let's say, trying to learn a new jump or trying to land a new jump, and it's, it's taking a really long time. How do you handle that with your skaters? Well, I try to be encouraging them, but I tell them they have to start pushing some buttons. That, you know, I'm doing the procedure, whatever it is, the same is not going to work. That they have to do something different. 
they either have to shake their, their training schedule, maybe they're doing too much and they have to cut back, maybe they're not enough. Um, maybe that their approach to doing a double axle has to change. Maybe the takeoff has to be quicker. Uh, maybe they have to be stronger in their upper body and work a little bit off ice so that they're stronger in their ability to uh, contract and pull in. I mean, but really basically push some buttons, change some things. I find with girls that um, when they get into the teenage um, stage, they may have been wonderful when they were younger, but something happens with girls' bodies. You know, they gain weight and they start to develop curves. And sometimes they really, really struggle, whereas when they were younger, they were wonderful. Well, I think that weight has a lot to do with that. And unfortunately for girls, um, figure skating can be an unkind sport if they have physical problems with their body. So that when they're approaching those years, if they're aware of trying to eat the right kinds of food and have the right eating patterns, even regardless of what the family eats, maybe they're not going to be able to eat the same and keep their body. Maybe they're going to have to have a little different diet than their brothers and sisters. But to be aware of uh, what could be creating the problem that's keeping them at this plateau. And I would also maybe suggest they take lessons from another coach, not a change coach, because I don't, I don't discard kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I will if there's a real uh, problem where I'm terribly unhappy and in my own life of the situation, but taking lessons from somebody else that maybe has a little bit a different outlook on what they're doing and can give them a little, you know, sharper, brighter, you know, new, fresh approach to what they're doing. But I think you, you can't leave the situation the way it is. You have to, to change it. So it sounds like you, you sort of emphasize pushing them outside of their comfort zone. Right, or uh, pushing them into something that, that is different. Mm-hmm. And making them aware. You know, it's very hard to tell a girl that she's struggling because she's heavy. And I think it's wrong to harp on weight. And, you know, years ago when I taught Christopher Bowman, I would have a scale all the time and get on the scale. But, you know, I've found that that doesn't work. I mean, you can't put young girls on a scale and demand that they weigh this and, you know, tell them when, you know, what the weight is. That doesn't work. So I do mention it, and I will say to them, look, uh, sweetheart, I want to talk to you about weight. You know, you're having trouble getting up in the air and you're not as quick anymore. And you are, you know, about five pounds or six pounds heavier than you were. I think it would help and you would be a lot more comfortable, you know, jumping without this six pounds on you. And I'm not going to mention it a lot. And I'm only going to mention it this time and not again. So it's up to you to understand that this is your responsibility. But I am not going to harp on it. So you're either going to get it right now and understand and do something about it or the situation is not going to get any better. Mm-hmm. So I handle it that way. How do you, uh, how do you handle the, the – uh, it's, it's sort of a, a related situation, but let's say a skater is in very good shape and they have very good jump technique – but it's very clear that they simply don't have enough athleticism or height to land a jump. How do you improve their flight time? What, what, what techniques do you use? Do you, do you send them off the ice? Do you let them continue to try the jump? What's your approach? Well, you know what? When I was a young man, I thought I could teach everybody in the world to jump. I thought I've had the greatest teacher in the world. 
I am a very good jumper myself, and I know how to teach jumps, and uh, this kid is going to jump over the moon. Well, you know what? It's not going to happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people, their bodies, the, the way their legs are, um, it, they're just not going to jump. And you can try, you know, to do any number of things, but it is very difficult if somebody is just naturally not a jumper. So, you know, I mean, that sounds kind of negative, but it is basically true. But what I will do is take them upstairs in front of the mirror and make them face the mirror and just do jumping exercises from a standstill, coordinating their arms, explaining to them how their arms coordinate with the spring, how their ankles work, their thighs, how they lift with their upper torso, and how you actually lift with everything you've got and try to get people to understand that when they're trying to jump high, they're using their entire body and they're coordinating everything they've got together. Uh, I think also uh, strength testing. If you are in a situation where you have some sports medicine people, if they can do testing of the different muscle groups and see if they're lacking in strength in a certain area, and then if that can be identified, then through the use of the gym or whatever, work on strengthening that particular muscle to see if it will help. And, you know, always talking about quick twitch, quickness, and not just jumping, but quicker, faster. Any exercises whatsoever that emphasize that would be a help. But, you know, I'm just saying these things are helps. But, you know, the more I'm around skating, the more I realize that people kind of are either jumpers or they're not. Mm-hmm. So, so double axle seems to be a major hurdle for uh, most skaters. In your workshops, uh, you stress that having a clean double actually is very special and it's an important dividing line. Um, how long did it take some of your famous skaters to learn a double axle? Well, it took Michelle Kwan over two years, which she laughs about. And <laughs> it is a, a very um, difficult job. To me, it, the dividing line is this. You can be a good skater, a really good skater, but you are not a really great skater or first-class skater until you can do a double axle clean and running and moving. That's the separation point between being really, really good and just being good. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a terribly hard jump. A lot of people are afraid of the forward takeoff. Personally, I love the forward takeoff, but, you know, there are a lot of kids that just do, do not like going off the front of that skate and have a great deal of difficulty standing up straight and bending their knee. They, they're, they're a little bit stiff, and they bend over to get the knee bend. And I think that's one of the basic mistakes people make in the double axle. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is a very hard jump to teach, and it is very frustrating for teachers. And I have a little girl right now who's creeping towards doing it clean. She had a half-turn cheat. Now she has a quarter-turn cheat. She's done a couple clean but they're not clean on a consistent basis. And I've just said to her, Lisa, do not worry about landing it. I don't care whether you stay up on one foot. I want you to get backwards, get backwards and fall. Feel like you're skating a back outside edge in the air on the way down. Feel that you're already on the back outside edge and land, you know, on your, on your skating hip that way. But don't come down, you know, flat-footed and don't come down without being in the right position because it's not going to work and it's more valuable 
to do it clean and fall than it is to do it cheating. So if somebody starts cheating a double axle, I would work my butt off on getting it clean quick because the longer they cheat it, the more they get into this comfort zone that that's the way I do it. Look, I can land my axle. All right, so you can land your double axle. It's going to be downgraded, and you're going to get negatives on the GOE. So what good is it to do a cheated double axle? Absolutely no good. It's more valuable to do a a single clean now than it is a cheated one. So I think it's very important that they get all the way around. And and that's kind of where the phrase one foot or fanny comes in, huh? (laughs) Yes, kind of. Except don't touch your butt to the eye so you're in double jeopardy. What are one or two things or philosophies that you emphasize with all of your skaters, uh, from beginners right through elite-level skaters? Well, all right. Um, I can think of one right off the top. I emphasize the fact that in figure skating, that line is very, very important, and basically the line is a dance line with a ballet class, and that your Hmm. posture is the same, the use of the arms, and the free leg, and that one of the things they have to learn right from the start is proper posture, the way the spine is, the way they stretch, the alignment of the limbs. In other words, where does the free leg go when it comes out of a jump? Does it go straight back, and is your back straight, or is it out to the side? Uh, what is the level of your arms, and what is the alignment of the hands the arms? So I teach a very strict ballet line right from the start, and I hope that as the years go by and they become more sophisticated, only become more groomed and more sophisticated. And so that I insist on, is body line. Do do you use it um, for the combination of for how their skating looks as well as uh, aligning them properly so that they can do all of the elements? Well, of course, because without... You know, good line, they're not going to be a very good skater as far as aesthetically looking at them and in performance, but also it teaches them fine balance and alignment. I mean, it's very hard to do a double axle unless you're over your skating foot on the start and your pelvis is under you and you're you're not broken. And so it's only a huge help to them as far as doing the difficult uh, skating jumps and spins as well as looking better. So it, it's a must that they understand posture and body line. Here's the next question. A current topic of conversation and even controversy right now among skating coaches is the new international judging system. You haven't been shy about questioning whether it is really beneficial to our sport. Could you say a few words about what you like about the new system as well as what concerns you? Well, what I like about it is that um, what you do is what you get. In other words, it's not, they don't go back to saying, oh, she doesn't look like a senior lady or, uh, oh, well, they're not ready yet. I mean, you either get out there and quit and you get the points for it and you succeed or you don't. And if you don't basically do your job, there's no way you're going to win. So I think a lot of maybe the um, subjectivity is taken out of the actual execution of the individual element. And I think that's good. I think that it's been an attempt to um, take away the cheating or the possibility of cheating within the judging. But I think the uh, program component marks are really still the area where they cheat or can, I'm not saying cheat, but can cheat 
because, you know, you, you either seem to be in a certain group where you have seven or sixes or you're considered down in the fives and the fours in the program components, and that doesn't move around very much. Uh, an example of this that I can give that I didn't understand is that in the Olympic Games, under transition in the men, uh, I thought, you know, Poshenko was definitely the best and should have won the competition hands down. I'm not, um, you know, saying that, that that shouldn't have happened. But in the transition, he did absolutely no transitions whatsoever from one jump to the other. None. Positively none. And yet he received the highest mark in transitions of any of the men. Now, I think he should have won and received very high marks in the program component, but not in transitions. I think his mark should have been down in the fours, and it wasn't. So they're not really reflecting the actual execution of some of those things when they're doing the program component marks, not the way I see it. So there are areas that that this system, I think, still is flawed, and as, as long as we have human beings judging, I think that probably it more or less will always be flawed. So there's things I like about it and things I don't like about the new judging system. I don't like the fact that the, the footwork all has to be chop, 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 turn, 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 reverse, blah, 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 blah. blah. I don't think some of the most effective footwork I've seen over the years has been that kind of turning and moving uh, it seems to be that now when you do a program, you have to move your body all over the place. And there's not a lot of the long grace and beauty that we've seen in the past because you simply do not have time to, to keep that kind of movement going in a program that's only a certain length of time. So it, it's very busy. The spins are very busy. The footwork is very busy. And a lot of it, of course, like particularly in the spirals, began to look totally alike. Everybody was doing exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't like that, that part of it. So I think it's good and bad, but my philosophy is it's here to stay. I better swing with it, and I better learn it, and I better know the rules and the different levels of difficulty. And um, if I don't, I'm going to become a dinosaur. I got tons of questions about individual elements, including axle, sit spins, double toe loop, lutz loop, triple flip, and camel spin combinations. Instead of trying to address each of those uh, today, I was wondering if you had any basic philosophies about jumps and spins that you feel would be helpful to other coaches. Um, yes, I do. First of all, I think axis is a very, very important concept of understanding how a jump turns in the air and where the body of basic balance while you're turning is. And that there's a, a big difference between uh, rotating backwards and rotating forward. And a lot of people don't even understand that. That, for instance, when you do a triple flip and you put in your toe pick and you pull back, that you do not turn forward and then play catch up. That you're actually doing a reverse turn and you're rotating with your your right hip or your skating pick side first. And I think that's very important, the concept of rotation. Whether you agree with me or not is not important. 
It's that you understand a philosophy of doing it, have a way of doing it that you always do, and that you don't do trick teaching, that mm-hmm. you don't say, well, try this. Maybe we'll turn this way on that. Maybe if you swung your free leg out on the triple flip a little more, it would help you get around. You know, I, I think that trick teaching is a very, very bad concept. I think that you have to develop a basic concept, for instance, how to rotate and use it and stick with it and not try different things that might happen one time. I think what you want is something that's going to develop consistency and happen all the time. So, you know, I really do relate to the backspin and to the reverse spin. I teach that when you do the backspin that your free side is forward and your skating hip is tucked in very hard onto you, and that's the side you're rotating on. I teach that when your arms come in, they're to the right of center on the skating side, that your balance in the air is not on two feet, that it's on one foot, and that your free foot is a little higher than your skating leg when you're in the air. And so, you know, I have very, very strict and basic concepts in my mind about how you jump. And I think that all good teachers do develop this and have this. And um, I don't expect everybody to agree with what I do. That's fine. But you have to have a way, a method, a technique of doing it. Do you find that it really helps your skaters that you are very consistent with with teaching that, you know, your specific system or method? Um, Yes. I think sometimes my method may be a little difficult, um, but I think it produces more consistency. I think when you look at my skaters over the years, uh, I hope, the thing that they were most probably known for is consistency. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Linda Fradiani, I don't think I ever saw her skate badly. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at Christopher Bowman, whether he was overweight or having his problems, his personal problems, he almost skated clean every time. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at Timothy Gable and you look at his performance at the Olympic Games and saw how incredibly accurate he was on those quads and on how he could land everything in that program. Uh, and you, you think of Michelle Kwan, the longevity, the year after year after year of skating well, proving she was the best, and getting out there and, and doing those jumps the same from the start of the program to the finish again and again, accurate, 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 the same timing. But that that really kind of to be proved that that if you if you really do do it my way, that it produces consistency. All right, so my next question is, is there any one thing or instruction that you tell your elite skaters when they're particularly tense and ready to step out to do their program after warm-up in a major competition? Um, yes, there is. And I think it has always helped them and myself. And that is to say to them, no one in this competition is more prepared than you are. You have done your work. You are a consistent skater. You ran through your program yesterday, and you landed everything in it. You're very, very well-trained. You you've done this program again and again well, you know you can do this program well, and you know you're ready to do it. Now go out and do it. Do you you find that 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 gives them a lot of confidence? Oh, yes, because they think, yes, I can do this. 
You know, he's telling me the truth. I know I can do this, and I will do it. And I think they feel, yes, I am prepared better than anybody else. So obviously, uh, I'm trying to relate it back to, um, let's say, coaches at, at, a, at a more of a local competition saying the same thing to some of their skaters. I think maybe at lower levels, the skater won't necessarily believe them. Um, but certainly at an elite level, I think the skaters are certainly, they recognize they really are consistent, they're very well trained, and they should be able to do it. So I guess all I'm saying is, is I'm not sure that that, it, that exact advice would work for everybody. But Well, for the... The younger kids, first of all, don't lie to them. Don't tell them that they're not nervous. You know, I, you know, the little kids when they're nervous and they're shaking and they're they're saying, you know, I'm I I don't know if I really like this. I feel I feel really nervous. Well, you can't say, honey, you're not nervous. Well, they are nervous. You say, well, you know what? This, yeah, I understand that feeling. That feeling that means you're excited and you're very excited to get out there. That's great. You know, you know. Turn it around. Don't make them feel like they're nervous. Just tell them that the excitement of doing it is this, this is the moment when it all comes true, and this is what you've worked hard for. So this is going to be fun, isn't it? You're excited about doing it, but not nervous. And I don't think you can lie to them, even when they're little kids. I think that you, you can say to them, go out there and do your best and, you know, keep the program going. And especially if I know somebody is really inconsistent, and not good, and, like, they just basically probably are going to make a mess, but they want to compete, and so you're in it with them, and you're there for them. So you say to them, keep your program going from the beginning to the end, and, you know, don't worry about anything. You know, just finish with the music and go out there and keep it going. And I think that's a good philosophy is that, okay, you told me not to stop it by fall or whatever, you know, whatever's going through their head that they're going to get through to the end. Wonderful. I think that's great advice. Uh, Frank, I literally have about 20 more questions from skating coaches, but we're out of time for today. <laughs> okay. Anyway, before we wrap it up, I'd just like to say how much uh, all of us coaches listening appreciate your input and words of wisdom. Thank you very much. Uh, my pleasure. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.